welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all God's children and all God's creation. If that be the case for some of us, then that's what's up. If that be not the case for others, but you're working on it, then that's what's up too. Because it is possible. Now, if that was the case for all of us, all our hearts and minds being full of love, joy, and compassion, then that would be a hundred. And since we all have the same one spirit of the great I am within us, know that having sincere love for all God's children and all God's creation is never impossible. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. It is by no means improbable that Jesus himself originally propounded as allegories, the cosmic activities which were later confused with his own life. That the Cairo Iota Sigma Tau Sigma, Christos, represents the solar power reverence by every nation of antiquity cannot be controverted. If Jesus revealed the nature and purpose of this solar power under the name and personality of Christos, thereby giving to this abstract power the attributes of a God-man, he but followed a precedent set by all previous world teachers. This God-man, thus endowed with all the qualities of deity, signifies the latent divinity in every man. Mortal man achieves deification only through atonement with this divine self. Union with the immortal self constitutes immortality, and he who finds his true self is therefore saved. This Christos, or divine man in man, is man's real hope of salvation, the living mediator between abstract deity and mortal humankind. As Adis, Adonis, Bacchus and Orpheus in all likelihood were originally illumined men who later were confused with the symbolic personages whom they created as personifications of this divine power, so Jesus has been confused with the Christos, or God-man, whose wonders he preached. Since the Christos was the God-man imprisoned in every creature, it was the first duty of the initiate to liberate, or resurrect, this eternal one within himself. He who attained reunion with his Christos was consequently termed a Christian, or christened, man. One of the most profound doctrines of the pagan philosophers concerned the universal Savior God who lifted the souls of regenerated men to heaven through his own nature. This concept was unquestionably the inspiration for the words attributed to Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. In an effort to make a single person out of Jesus and his Christos, Christian writers have patched together a doctrine which must be resolved back into its original constituents, if the true meaning of Christianity is to be rediscovered. In the Gospel narratives, 
the Christos represents the perfect man who, having passed through the various stages of the world mystery, symbolized by the 33 years, ascends to the heaven sphere where he is reunited with his eternal father. The story of Jesus as now preserved is, like the Masonic story of Hiram Abif, part of a secret initiatory ritualism belonging to the early Christian and pagan mysteries. During the centuries just prior to the Christian era, the secrets of the pagan mysteries had gradually fallen into the hands of the profane. To the student of comparative religion, it is evident that these secrets gathered by a small group of faithful philosophers and mystics, were reclothed in new symbolical garments and thus preserved for several centuries under the name of mystic Christianity. It is generally supposed that the Essenes were the custodians of this knowledge and also the initiators and educators of Jesus. If so, Jesus was undoubtedly initiated in the same temple of Melchizedek, where Pythagoras had studied six centuries before. The Essenes, the most prominent of the early Syrian sects, were an order of pious men and women who lived lives of asceticism, spending their days in simple labor and their evenings in prayer. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, speaks of them in the highest terms. They teach the immortality of the soul, he says, and esteem that the rewards of righteousness are to be earnestly striven for. In another place he adds, yet is their course of life better than that of other men, and they entirely addict themselves to husbandry. The name Essenes is supposed to be derived from an ancient Syrian word meaning physician, and these kindly folk are believed to have held as their purpose of existence, the healing of the sick in mind, soul, and body. Jesus was reared and educated by the Essenes and later initiated into the most profound of their mysteries. Like all great initiates, he must travel in an easterly direction, and the silent years of his life no doubt were spent in familiarizing himself with that secret teaching later to be communicated by him to the world. Having consummated the ascetic practices of his order, he attained to the christening. Having thus reunited himself with his own spiritual source, he then went forth in the name of the one who has been crucified since before the worlds were, and, gathering about him disciples and apostles, he instructed them in that secret teaching which had been lost, in part, at least, from the doctrines of Israel. His fate is unknown, but in all probability he suffered that persecution, which is the lot of those who seek to reconstruct the ethical, philosophical, or religious systems of their day. To the multitudes Jesus spoke in parables, to his disciples he also spoke in parables, though of a more exalted and philosophic nature. Voltaire said that Plato should have been canonized by the Christian Church, for, being the first propounder of the Christos mystery, he contributed more to its fundamental doctrines than any other single individual. Jesus disclosed to his disciples that the lower world is under the control of a great spiritual being which had fashioned it according to the will of the Eternal Father. The mind of this great angel was both the mind of the world and also the worldly mind. So that men should not die of worldliness, the Eternal Father sent unto creation the eldest and most exalted of his powers, the Divine Mind. This Divine Mind offered itself as a living sacrifice and was broken up and eaten by the world. Having given its spirit and its body at a secret and sacred supper to the twelve manners of rational creatures, this Divine Mind became a part of every living thing. Man was thereby enabled to use this power as a bridge across which he might pass and attain immortality. He who lifted up his soul to this divine mind and served it was righteous, and having attained righteousness, liberated this divine mind, which thereupon returned again in glory to its own divine source. And because he had brought to them this knowledge, the disciples said one to another, Lo, he is himself this mind personified. The Secret Teachings of All Ages, by Manley P. Hall, 1928
2, chapter 4. The first groups of Christians, who were non-shows numbering but from 7 to 12 men in each church, belonged unquestionably to the poorest and most ignorant classes. They had and could have no idea of the highly philosophical doctrines of the Platonists and Gnostics, and evidently knew as little about their own newly made-up religion. To these, who if Jews had been crushed under the tyrannical dominion of the law as enforced by the elders of the synagogues, and if pagans had been always excluded, as the lower castes are until now in India, from the religious mysteries, the God of the Jews and the Father preached by Jesus, were all one. The contentions which reigned from the first years following the death of Jesus, between the two parties, the Pauline and the Petrine, were deplorable. What one did, the other deemed a sacred duty to undo. If the homilies are considered apocryphal, and cannot very well be accepted as an infallible standard by which to measure the animosity which raged between the two apostles, we have the Bible, and the proofs afforded therein are plentiful. So hopelessly entangled seems Irenaeus in his fruitless endeavors to describe, to all outward appearance at least, the true doctrines of the many Gnostic sects of which he treats, and to present them at the same time as abominable heresies, that he either deliberately, or through ignorance, confounds all of them in such a way that few metaphysicians would be able to disentangle them, without the Kabbalah and the Codex as the true keys. Thus, for instance, he cannot even tell the difference between the Sethianites and the Ephites, and tells us that they called the God of all, Hominem, a man, and his mind the second man, or the son of man. So does Theodoret, who lived more than two centuries after Irenaeus, and who makes a sad mess of the chronological order in which the various sects succeeded each other. Neither the Sethianites, a branch of the Jewish Nazarenes, nor the Ephites, a purely Greek sect have ever held anything of the kind. Irenaeus contradicts his own words by describing in another place the doctrines of Serinthus, the direct disciple of Simon Magus. He says that Serinthus taught that the world was not created by the first god, but by a virtue, virtus, or power, an eon so distant from the first cause that he was even ignorant of him who is above all things. This eon subjected Jesus, he begot him physically through Joseph from one who was not a virgin, but simply the wife of that Joseph, and Jesus was born like all other men. Viewed from this physical aspect of his nature, Jesus was called the Son of Man. It is only after his baptism, that Christos, the Anointed, descended from the princeliness of above, in the figure of a dove, and then announced the Unknown Father through Jesus. H. P. Blavatsky If, therefore, Jesus was physically considered as a Son of Man, and spiritually as the Christos, who overshadowed him, how then could the God of all, the Unknown Father, be called by the Gnostics Homo, a man, and his mind, Enia, the second man, or son of man? Neither in the Oriental Kabbalah, nor in Gnosticism, was the God of all ever anthropomorphized. It is but the first, or rather the second emanations, for Shekinah, Sephira, Depth, and other first manifested female virtues are also emanations, that are termed primitive men. Thus, Adam Codman, Enia, or Sige, the Logoi in short, are the only begotten ones but not the sons of man, which appellation properly belongs to Christos the son of Sophia, the elder, and of the primitive man who produces him through his own vivifying light, which emanates from the source or cause of all, hence the cause of his light also, the unknown father. There is a great difference made in the Gnostic metaphysics between the first unrevealed Logos and the anointed, who is Christos. Ennia may be termed, as Philo understands it, the second god, 
but he alone is the primitive and first man, and by no means the second one, as Theodoret and Irenaeus have it. It is but the inveterate desire of the latter to connect Jesus in every possible way, even in the heresies, with the highest God, that led him into so many falsifications. Such an identification with the unknown God, even of Christos, the anointed, the eon who overshadowed him, let alone of the man Jesus, never entered the head of the Gnostics nor even of the direct apostles and of Paul, whatever later forgeries may have added. How daring and desperate were many such deliberate falsifications, was shown in the first attempts to compare the original manuscripts with later ones. H.P. Blavatsky Volume 16. I have placed within this nation, at certain spots, the concentration of the sacred fire of victory, sacred fire mastery by the angelic host, of certain physical manifestations. In certain other places I have placed a crystal sword of authority and power and control. And since that was done by my authority and control, I took the responsibility. I shall see it is fulfilled and carried through to its completion. These things have been done within the borders of this nation. More can be done if you will send forth the call for the cosmic law's release of all the dispensations that permit this to come into the physical conditions of this land, into the government and the activity of the people, to take the power out of the clutches of the hordes of evil that have woven themselves into the activities of the people, and try to bring the people under their destructive control. Now if you care to take this up, and ask for the establishment of the cosmic Christ blue lightning annihilation everywhere within the borders that communism has tried to control the people and carry on its devilish activities, we know where that is. We know where it is far more than the people do. And if you demand this, demand the cosmic dispensation that establishes for eternity within your borders, the ascended masters and cosmic beings sacred fire presence everywhere communism tries to influence the people, you will find they will run into considerable opposition and their sustaining power will soon be withdrawn. And this needs to be done wherever possible within your land, in your business, and every activity of the people. Now, one more thing. If you will also call this cosmic sun presence of the cosmic flame of cosmic victory, your victory is assured before you start, of the cosmic Christ blue lightning annihilation of all intended violence against the people within your borders. We know where that is planned. We know the weaklings that can be used to impose that violence. And therefore, when you make the call, we take the responsibility of establishing those activities of the sacred fire in the localities where these things are planned, and where the sinister force thinks it's going to bring forth the destruction that makes the people slaves to the communistic regime. Beloved Archangel Michael The communists depend on a certain amount of slaughter, until they've taken out the majority of people in the nation, and then the minority that are left are whipped into slavery. Now we can prevent this by your calls, the call for the dispensations that forever establish for eternity the cosmic sacred fire sun presence of the cosmic flame of cosmic victory of our cosmic sacred fire mastery, in everything that is the trust, authority, influence, and control of any activity that affects the people, the nation, or the powers of nature within your borders. And we'll see whether anybody is going to be master over our sacred fire presence. Now when you ask for this sun presence, Remember, it contains within it the focus of the flame of the being whose likeness it is within that sun. Just the same as the flame from the seven mighty Elohim, 
The sevenfold flame is within the brain structure of individuals, we can place within the physical structure of earth, and within these activities of government and business, the control of the people, we can establish exactly a similar focus of our sacred fire from our octave of life. And I assure you, since mankind must know more of the activity of the angelic host, and mankind must face the annihilation of the hordes of evil, then to call this into outer physical conditions will, I assure you, bring illumination to the minds of the people quite, as well as the annihilation of the hordes of evil from within the activity of the people. We are ready to give it. The cosmic law will permit it if you demand that it be established as an eternal part of the government of this nation, an eternal part of the activity of its people, an eternal part of the ground structure of the powers of nature within your borders. We know of many places where this can be brought forth and its power set into action, and no one knows it's there until the victory is attained. So, there are many, many, many powers of life of which the sinister force knows nothing, and we are much of that. We are the powers of life of which the sinister force knows very little. They know we exist, but they do not know our methods of operation, and they certainly are not master over us. Applause. Thank you so much. Beloved Archangel Michael, 